Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Volume 601, Public Fever, August 4th, 2015. Don't miss a single episode. Subscribe to the podcast through RSS or iTunes. Welcome back to our first official brand new episode in almost five years. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo. This week, we're doing a lot with the Red Hot Public Theater. We've got Joel Perez, who made his Broadway debut in the Tony-winning Fun Home. We've also got the Public Theater's prop master, Jay Duckworth, coming in to talk with us about everything going on in the props world. And Jonathan G. Galvez, four-time participant in the Fringe, tells you how to do the fringe right. Special thanks to our location sponsor. Thank you, Sid Gold's Request Room. New York City's original rock and roll piano bar for great cocktails and live piano karaoke with Joe McGinty. Sid Gold's Request Room, located at West 26th Street between 6th and 7th Avenues. Up close. And today I woke up with a feeling that I did not recognize. That's when I knew, oh, 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 everything's all right, babe, when we're together, when we're together, cause you are like a raincoat made out of love. All right, I'm sitting here with Joel Perez, who has been having a great time, uh, through the whole developmental run of a little musical that nobody's heard of called Fun Home. Yeah, yeah, nobody's heard of it. Oh, wait, they do now, right? <laughs> <laughs> How are you doing, Joe? Yeah, oh, great, great. <laughs> but doing Broadway, this is all old hat for you, right? No, it's first time. Oh, yeah, Broadway Very first debut. Time. Broadway debut. <laughs> so how did butt. that happen? Um, it, it, how did it happen? Yeah, how did it happen? I hear there's a little bit of a story <laughs> behind this. Did you go through, like, Cattle Call? No, auditions? no, I... I uh, I got involved with Fun Home uh, at its really one of its really early stages when it was still being developed as a workshop. I was out at the Sundance Theater Lab in Jacksonville, Florida, right outside of Jacksonville, and I was 
they're working on this musical called Stuck Elevator. During that workshop, Janine Tesori and Lisa Crone happened to be there on their own writing this musical called Fun Home. And uh, the way those workshops are structured, we kind of work during the day, but at night we get dinner together, hang out, get to know each other. And uh, towards the end of that lab, uh, Janine and Lisa were like, you're great, you should be in our musical. <laughs> so I was like, what? I will do anything you want. And uh, the next year, Sundance, the Sundance Theater Lab gave them a proper workshop, a full, a full developmental lab with a cast, and um, I, they asked me to be a part of it. So that was about three years ago. And uh, in every iteration, luckily, they've kept me on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, were, were there ever any worries? On your part as an actor, were you worried that they were going to maybe replace you? At any oh, all the time. Or? All the time. Every, every day. <laughs> I was like, the, this is the day they're going to fire me. <laughs> Just, I don't know. Like, I... I it, it all seemed to be going too well, and I'm a bit of a worrier in that sense that I was like, well, they're going to fire me, or uh, once we go to Broadway, they're going to find somebody who's been on Broadway before to do it, or some kind of celebrity that's going to take my job. So I, 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 I choose to always be cautiously optimistic and then just be wonderfully surprised when it goes well. <laughs> <laughs> So how much juggling was there? How much room was there between the transfer from the public to Broadway? And was there a period in between where you didn't know if it was going? Or was it one of those ones that was kind of like, yes, we know right away it's going? Uh, there was always talk of it transferring right away to Broadway. But from, from the end of our public run downtown to when we actually opened on Broadway, it was about a year and a half. Um, and we knew once the public run was done, then the run at the public was so great. We extended a lot. It was sold out. Um, we got incredible reviews, but it was still the kind of show that wasn't, I always got the sense that it wasn't going to be like a shoe in for Broadway just because. It, I mean, it's a natural, right? It's, it's everything you expect in a Broadway show, right? It's so different. No, it's, it's so different. <laughs> yeah. Like, I think that's why people were kind of like, I don't know, how, like, how are you going to market this thing? It stops being about the art and it starts being more about the business side of, of uh, what we do in theater. Uh, when it does leave the nonprofit world and become this commercial venture, you're like, all right, how are we going to make money off of this thing? And so when it's this musical about a lesbian and her gay dad who commits suicide, like, I don't know how many people are going to be running to the box office to see that. So it was a real challenge for our, and our marketing department has been incredible and our press has been incredible to um, kind of make it, just show that it's really just a story about a family and it's really universal. Um, the biggest surprise for me watching it was how funny it was. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, even listening to the cast album, which has a good majority of the show <laughs> on it. Yeah. The humor didn't read on the recording like sure. it does watching it. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it, that's also a reflection of Alison Bechtel, who the story is based on. When, when you read her, her graphic novel, Fun Home, it's really funny. She's so sarcastic and really witty. And, um, but it's, I, the, it's also the mannerisms, the face. Yeah, like, yeah. So listening to the cast up, and the words are there. Sure, but I sure. didn't get how oh, this is funny, too. But mm -hmm. watching it, the, the dry wit, it's just yeah, yeah. heartbreaking laughter you yeah know, yeah the, i think that that's also a testament to our writer lisa crone because she's so she's like that in her own writing and in another place that she's written um so i i think audiences are surprised that it actually is kind of while the subject matter is kind of heavy it isn't you don't it isn't like torturous to go through the experience of seeing our show 
Now you um, play four roles, right? In four that? roles, yeah. Is that because they just didn't want to pay a lot of Broadway actors? <laughs> well, they had to cut some corners. Yeah. Um, I was supposed to play one yeah. of the boys, the little kids, but they were like, that would be weird. Um, no, I mean, I guess uh, What's it, what, it how, kind of evolved into yeah. that. There was, they always uh, had a sense that kind of Bruce, uh, the character that Michael Servers plays, would be the only, um, it, he would be in... Um, juxtaposition to a bunch of uh, different men in his life, but that they were just kind of objects rather than creating um, like real backstories or, or um, uh, fully fleshed out characters for these people. They were just kind of like other men in his life that then I think having me play all of those characters kind of drives that theme home a bit. Um, and it was a fun challenge for me to play a bunch of characters and not play them as big characterizations or that it's like like a like a clown kind of show yeah it's, it's not like greater tuna coming in and like <laughs> yeah yeah we're not doing like 39 steps and i'm playing 30 like 300 characters it's just how do you make these characters different without it being a cartoon which was a great challenge for me um i think it was i i was a little worried about um feeling like the, the audience is going to get a sense that I am playing different people without it. I, cause I would, I guess I would tend to lean more toward like making it bigger and making the changes between like changing my voice really extreme to make them very different. Um, and, and they aren't extreme characters. You know what I mean? No, you, no. The, I don't want to spoil the plot, mm -hmm. you know what your character is, but you, you kind of fulfill a pattern for mm -hmm. Michael Severus mm -hmm. in, in the roles you play. Would that be a fair statement? Sure. Sure. Yeah, and, and my and my my instinct was to be a bit bigger between each character and like, all right, how am I gonna make this guy totally different? He's a younger guy, so I'm gonna. And then our director Sam Gold was just like, stop it, like it's not like do less. Um, and that's also his aesthetic as a director. It's really naturalistic, really simple. It shouldn't feel uh, really presentational. It isn't that kind of show. And also having our show in the round doesn't really lend itself to that kind of big style of performance because it is so intimate your career coming to new york and, yeah. and breaking into the theater so what what were some <laughs> of the things you had to do to I, pay the bills while auditioning and getting because while on one hand i have to say your story i think is a good illustration of people always say oh it's so lucky and you get that lucky break and everything's going on and you definitely had a lucky break but sure. You had that lucky break because you were putting yourself out there. Oh, yeah. You know, so. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was that guy who would go to every open call. I would wake up at five in the morning and <laughs> I like look back at that and I'm like, I was insane. Like how like now I would never do that. But I just had this like insane drive when I first moved here because I it, it's all I it was my only option. I didn't have any backup plans. Um, but. I didn't, I actually didn't move to New York right away after school. I um, went to Tufts University outside of Boston and grew up about um, 40 minutes north of Boston in Lawrence, Massachusetts. And so when school was done, I did this program uh, through the American Theater Wing called Springboard NYC, which was this like actor boot camp training thing that you'd like meet casting directors and agents and uh, see a bunch of shows and and it's just a lot of like really practical advice about like what do you do to move to New York and be an actor and the more of the business side of acting. And I was talking to the woman who ran, who ran it at the time, Randy Luderman, and she gave me some great advice because I was 
thinking about maybe auditioning for um, some theater in Boston. There was this thing called the Stage Source Auditions, and you it's like this big consortium of theaters in Boston, and you go one day and audition for all these theaters. It's a great way to get tons of work. Uh, but I was like, no, I need to move to New York. I really want to be here. All my friends from college are moving, and I just want to, like, you know, do be a starving artist in New York. And she was kind of like, well, New York isn't going anywhere. And you didn't go to like a, a, a traditional, um, like art school. Like it wasn't, we didn't have like this like great acting training program. We didn't get a showcase or anything. So I was going to kind of move. No showcase. No showcase. Oh. I would have just moved with like a suitcase and a dream. How did you get to Broadway with no showcase? Well then <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's just kind of like how you kind of have to take your time and really, uh, be smart about the choices that you make because I ended up staying in Boston for a year after school. I took her advice, stayed in, so like lived at home in Lawrence, was like waiting tables at a TGI Fridays while also doing a ton of theater and uh, working a lot in Boston. And there happened to be uh, tax breaks for films and commercials to shoot in, in the New England area. And because I was a local actor, anytime they needed uh, day players for stuff, I would go to these casting calls and get cast as like little bit parts in movies. Um, so it was an incredible opportunity to kind of get experience and build up my resume. And, um, and then the summer, so I stayed in Boston for a year. And then that following summer, I got into the non-equity company at the Williamstown theater festival. And through that, they set up a showcase for us in New York city for agents and managers and, after that, after that summer was done, I was like, all right, I'm going to move to New York and give it a shot because at least then I wasn't just going to be moving with like nothing. At least I'd, I'd have, I had like a, a project and like a plan of something that could maybe um, pan out into representation or something. And luckily it did. I ended up getting some great uh, commercial agents and um, auditioning a lot. And, but I was, still wasn't equity. I was, I was EMC. So I'd, I had to go to tons of open calls. Um, How, what's an open call really like? Oh God, it's the worst. Just so many, everyone is so high energy. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's got like a suitcase and makeup and I'm not a dancer, dancer. Like I'm, a, I guess I'm be, considered, dance, I'm the dance captain, captain for Fun Home, but there's like no <laughs> choreography in Fun Home. Yeah. Like contractually, someone has to have that job. Um, well, but you do a little dancing. I do, I do. It's it's pretty good, but uh, but not but not at the level of like I've been <laughs> dancing since I was six or something. Uh, so you go to these big open calls in New York City, and um, it's just it can just be really overwhelming because there's so many people there. You have to show up really early. If you're not equity, then you have to like put yourself on an on like a, another list. Like you show up at like five in the morning, wait in line, and then wait for them to open the doors at like eight a.m. You wait for like three hours in the cold if it's winter time, and then you finally get inside and then you put your name. Luckily, I was EMC, so that's like another list, like it's a list above non equity. And then, as there are slots for non equity actors to come in, if, if they happen to have slots open up, then you could get seen, but there's no guarantee of that. So, you end up having to kind of wait around all day and then maybe for, for the chance to maybe get seen and often that wouldn't happen. So you like waste your whole day. So there, there did come a point after I was moving, when I, when I moved to New York, I was kind of just doing the nitty gritty of like trying to be an actor that I was starting to get really disheartened and kind of, and, and, and even, even when, even before I moved to New York, I would uh, drive down to New York from Boston. If there were certain auditions that I thought I'd be good for, like 
I did that a lot for In the Heights and for um, Hair when it was at the public and then on Broadway. So I, I, there did come a point where I was feeling a little disheartened. But then, of course, at that moment when I was feeling really disheartened, I randomly got this call from Telsey Casting for the National Tour of In the Heights. And it was like I had auditioned for them a year and a half before. That was like when I was still living in Boston. So somehow my headshot and resume had stayed in some kind of pile for a while. And they were like, hey, do you live in New York now? Uh, can you come in and audition for our tour? And I was like, yes, I can. I am totally available. And I ended up getting that tour. I ended up, uh, yeah, I had like six callbacks and stuff. And so I was a part of the ensemble for that tour. Well, we've had a great talk here. What thought would you like to close off this interview with? I don't know. I think it's just, I'm just trying to be very... Um, kind of soak in everything that's happening right now, with especially with Fun Home. I think it's such a beautiful and timely and important show, and I just really encourage people that if they're coming to New York City, really take the time to come and see our show, because I think it'll be... Um, I think it, it could really... It's, it's changing a lot of people's lives, and the opportunity to do that in theater, and musical theater on Broadway, is really rare. And so um, I hope people can come and share in that with us. All right, well, thank you for joining us. Thank you. You can hear the full, unedited version of the interview with Joel Perez on BroadwayBullet.com or SoundCloud. If you are a regular listener, or if you have just discovered Broadway Bullet, I have just set up a Patreon page. Please support our program by pledging a dollar amount for each podcast episode. I'm not going to make anything from these donations. All donations will go to expenses in producing the program and providing flexible, part-time jobs to theater students for helping with the editing, follow-up, and more. Visit patreon.com slash broadwaybullet to contribute, or just click the link on our main webpage. Thanks in advance for your support in creating quality theater podcast programming. As an added extra treat, here is a duet with Joel Perez and Maddie Featherby. This is from The Mapmaker's Opera and is called Two of a Kind, Mapmaker's Opera, music by Kevin Purcell, book and lyrics by Victor Kazan. How beautiful they are Only God could have made them A sacred choir of songbirds Of every shade and hue Shut your free, free to do. 
were really there. And I knew I'd found the girl that I would die for without hesitation. And thank the Lord for having made us as we are. Who could deny you and I are two of a I'd like to remind everybody that we love to feature original music on Broadway Bullet. So if you are a composer of musical theater or cabaret music and you've got a recording, please send it in to us. Email us at broadwaybulletnyc at gmail.com. If appropriate, please include a two-sentence setup for context of your song. And hopefully you'll hear your song soon on Broadway Bullet. I'm Robert Petkoff. And I'm Arnie Burton from 39 Steps. Catch our interview on the next Broadway Bullet. The next promotional spot is available for your business. Special thanks to our travel sponsor. Travel sponsor is Michael Gilbo. Yep, that's me. At the moment, I'm fronting all these expenses out of pocket. In return, I encourage you, please visit my website, michaelgilbo.com. Uh, you can sign up for my mailing list. I do music, playwriting, audiobooks, and I give away lots of free stuff to people on my list uh, based on what you're interested in. So stop by michaelgilbo.com. I'm the travel sponsor. Appreciate it. Thank you. Backstage. I've got Jay Duckworth sitting here with me. With uh, he's the props master, head of props at the public theater, and uh, the man who really is most responsible for the fact that this program is coming back at you. I'm, which I'm very, very happy about. Which I'm really, really psyched about. I, what is a props master? Props are what you hold on to, right? That's what you put in your hands. Do you know? <laughs> somebody told me they're like, you make scarves, right? And I was like, are you are you out of your mind? And she was like, no, no, that's what props do, like just scarves. <laughs> and I was like, and I had no idea how. And I, and a lot of people, uh, a lot of critics, when they go to shows, don't know that what props people do or where their signature ends and the set designer begins. And there's even a whole thing called propstumes, which is costumes and props that mix together. So uh, props is pretty much anything that has ever been or can be in the history of all time. Uh, and so there's there's hand props, there's set props, there's um, green ring, uh, and you're responsible for all those on stage. You're also responsible, like paper props, like a newspaper has to be replaced. If it's a new newspaper that you have on stage, you have to replace that at least twice a week. So it doesn't look like an old newspaper by the time that the people come in and see it. Cause they're not going to believe that, you know, you also have to do uh, uh, any kind of a letter, any letter that gets opened every night. You have to, you have to make sure that you have a fresh letter, all the food that has to be eaten. Um, so you have to, there was, there was one actress who uh, had a dietary restriction. She couldn't, you know, we were going to do champagne and uh, she couldn't have, uh, 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 she had diabetes and uh, she couldn't have sugar. And then, but she was also, uh, she also, uh, couldn't have this or couldn't have another thing. And then another actor was like, Oh, I can't have aspartame. So it's can't be this. <laughs> so you got, you, you, it's, it's the weirdest thing. Cause you have to please a, an actor, the director and the designers, as well as keeping a, uh, not only all those people happy, but, uh, the aesthetic and history correct. So with having to do that, with having to provide everything that's on stage, Surely the public has, you know, and with Hamilton and Fun Home and 
Shakespeare in the Park. Surely you've got a humongous team of people to make 75 people in the prop shop. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's, we we just hired a third person. There are only three of us. It is uh, myself, Sarah Swanberg, who's the shop manager. She, she takes care of the, uh, all the uh, left brain stuff. And then um, Rebecca David, who is, who takes care of the uh, uh, shop itself, the shop foreman. Uh, so, um, and she's all, both of them, both of them are just crackerjack cause you can't do this yourself. And then we'll also hire in other prop masters, but I'm, I'm the resident prop master and anything that we do bring in, I, you know, I, everything goes, goes through our department and we check to make sure everything's safe. Everything's beautiful. And, uh, it's a struggle. It's, it's really, really tough because you start a week before the production, you know, like at least a week or two before the production even starts pulling props. So they have something on the first day and your job goes until the very, like 30 minutes before the show, you know, <laughs> like opening night. I, uh, one time I was handed a, a fan, an, uh, a half hour before half hour. And, uh, one of the guys was like, uh, black, black fans are no good in J- uh, Japan. It means funeral. You need to have this white fan, uh, <laughs> and you've got to go match it. And, and we did, it was opening night. I told the actress, the actress was fine. I was like, it's just a fan. She goes, absolutely fine. But it's, 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 it's pretty crazy. It's, it's the, the, the depth and breadth of, uh, of things you have to know is pretty phenomenal. You know, it, it, it's, I'm, I'm good at trivia. <laughs> <laughs> what a job fun home was. Must oh, have been. uh, yeah. <laughs> Faye, Faye, Faye Arnone did a, 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 an incredible job. Uh, with that, it was just, it, there was so much. Now, have you seen, you saw the one down to the public or you saw the, 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 the new certain, I saw the new, the Broadway incarnation. Okay. Eight times as much stuff uh, uh, down <laughs> okay. at the public. Okay. <laughs> Eight times. I mean, there was, there was, it, it, we had, we had a, a buck, you know, there was no room off stage because there was <laughs> so much, I swear to God, Michael, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was thousands of dollars of stuff and they they had to cut it back because it was more because sam gold did the wise thing and just focused on the story you know uh when they took it when they took it up to broadway um and everybody in davidson who is uh our uh who is the set designer in that is doing costumes for us in the park and for um um cymbeline and you'll love i mean he's he's great he's great well you you, you saw his work so it's it's he's very very meticulous about detail and there are people like he who, uh, as set designers, give very specific drawings. But you also have some other people who are just like, no, no, I trust you. Let's see what you got, and then we'll we'll go for that. You know, so so it, it varies. It really varies. But if you put pen to paper and you have to like, uh, there was one time I had to build a thirteen foot guillotine that had to work on stage every night, and had uh, to work. Had to work every every night, and even the French couldn't get a guillotine to work all the time. I mean, there were times that they, they yeah. stopped. But Terrence McNally looked me right in the eye, and he was like, "This has got to work every night." And I was like, "Okay, then I'm, I'm glad you got me then." <laughs> and uh, and after the meeting, uh, the director was like, uh, "Wow, that's that's pretty bold." And I was like, "I have no idea if I'm going to be able to do that." <laughs> I was like, "We'll make it happen. Though. We'll make it happen." <laughs> People have such incredible needs when they are on stage because. I can't do acting. I, I you know, there's, I, I thank God we have professionals who just do that because you are naked on that stage. Your soul and your, your, you are completely naked and you need as much as you can. And our job is to totally support that in any way we can so that you can, you can do the best job 
you can. And we have to make things absolutely seamless. One time I was working with um, the great Uta Hagen, and we had a checkbook for her. This was uh, Collected Stories. And in that checkbook, I made sure it was her uh, address, the character's name, the character's address, everything on that check. And we took a um, uh, pounce wheel. Do you know what a pounce wheel is? It's got all the needles on it so you could... Uh, oh, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'd run a pounce wheel over the top of it so she could rip the check out every night. So we made a check from a bank in New York with her New York. And this was out in Jersey. And she, she saw it and smiled. And just that smile alone made me know that what I was doing... That's why I do that bunch of detail work because when you do that, you create a world for the actors to be safe in and to that don't throw them off. Everything that you do is to support the end game, to make that art seamless as possible. And I, I tell my interns all the time, we, the reason I tell them to work harder and the reason I, I make them, you know, read the play a couple hundred times or, or, or research as much as they can is because we're only caretakers right now of the art. You know, we have to pass this along to the next generation because the next generation has to lift it up a little bit higher. You know, technology and everything that are co- that's coming out is is incredible. You know, I mean, where is that new Pepper's Ghost that's coming out? Is it the holograms? You know, so so we have a lot of people doing a lot of really cool things now, but we're just caretakers, and we have to make this easy so that the entire process goes well and the story is told. We we dust off people's souls, and I love that. Yeah, well, I haven't been able to see Hamilton yet. Give us a teaser. The, the great thing about it is it's there's such a you have to stick to history because uh, Lynn and uh, Ron worked really closely together. The guy, uh, Chernow, the guy who wrote the book, worked very closely to make it very, very historically accurate. And uh, the hip hop music, it started off as, as a Hamilton mixtape. And if you listen to it, when you listen to the songs, he, he set all the songs as if they were a mixtape songs. So there's a 1960s Beatles type song, which is Jonathan Groff's song as George III. There is a, a Biggie Small song. There is like, so there's all kinds of different uh, style of music inside there as if it was a mixtape. So, so you're a hit with boom, 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 these, these great songs over and over and over. And not one of them is the same, except that, that he's done the Wagnerian thing of making each character have their own small theme. You know, so it's like, you know, that this quarter time, you know, is, is going to be Washington because he's very, very military. I think Aaron Burr is going to be a little more lyrical because he's kind of like going in and out. He's not like ever committing. And Hamilton is, is always driving, you know, and the Schuyler sisters always have their have their beautiful, you know, their their lilting song. So it, it's like it's 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 OK. The, the, the choreography is mind blowing. It's a character in itself. And the first time I saw this when it was in uh uh, a spring table work and read through uh, and a sing through. I started crying. I stood up in front of Oscar Eustace and I was like, I grabbed him and I was crying. I was like, and, and he's, and he was like, and all he said to me was like, I know, I know. And I was like, I've never been in the room where I knew history was happening. And I knew at that moment that this would change, this would change the face of theater. But uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your Shakespeare in the Park uh, event this year and your work on that? We have three different shows uh, that go up at the Delacorte. Um, there are two Shakespeare's. Uh, that's usually Oscar usually finds some Shakespeare or a classic play. And uh, again, totally free because it, this belongs to the people in New York. 
Uh, and then we do one, which is our public works project, where we get people from uh, the different boroughs together to do a classic, a classic Shakespeare uh, or a classical theater work. This year we're doing Odyssey. Uh, and Lear Bassonet is uh, is the one who's uh, directing that, and she uh, Todd Allman uh, uh, is doing the music for it. Um, and they they worked the past couple of years. We did uh, um, uh, Tempest. We've done Winter's Tale. Uh, just and these are then these are like the Brownville seniors. So mm-hmm. so it's a group of seniors will come out and do a dance number and sing. There'll be young rappers and dancers, you know, doing their thing. They're high school kids doing their thing. So they're all integrated into this project. And it, it really is beginning. It, it goes back to the people. The people are doing theater in New York, their theater. And uh, the, the one that we're working on right now is Cymbeline. And Cymbeline is uh, one of T- Shakespeare's kind of weird plays because it takes over the course of 300 years. <laughs> and uh, Dan Sullivan, who's a genius, decided to make it in Shakespeare's, like in, in the attic of Shakespeare's mind. And uh, so he's sending up because all of these things are are almost like farce. This this show is almost like a farce of Shakespeare because it's got you know lines that are lifted from other Shakespeare plays, situations that are lifted from other Shakespeare plays, and uh, so he plays on that farce. And uh, Hamish Linkletter, and then um, uh, Lily Rabe, who is on American Horror Stories, and, and those guys are both uh, starring in it, and. Um, they're both wonderful. They're both really great. And it's such a great show. You, you know, this is the first time anybody's talking to a prop person. Yeah. It, I, whenever I like tried to contact, you know, PR people and said, yeah, I wanted to talk to the set. What? Yeah. <laughs> like, like, I don't even know how to get a hold of that person <laughs> to like send them down and talk to you. It's like some of that flare on Titanic that no one's around. It's like, okay, hold on. <laughs> yeah. Good luck. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's tough. It's tough, you know. And there's not a lot of there's not a heavy network. And the thing that we do to to set designers, costume designers, uh, lighting designers, sound design is we pay them so little, unfortunately, that they have to do two or three gigs at us at the same time. So they're stretched so thin, they don't have time to promote themselves. You know, I mean, they're they're working as hard as they can, and most of their fee goes to their assistants. Blah blah blah. I'm up on my soap. This is jam- <laughs> well, and here's a good thing: I can also make the soapbox as a prop master that I'm standing on. <laughs> That's a good conclusion for this interview. <laughs> and we will continue backstage at the Delacorte. All right, and then we'll go there. Yeah. Have, thank you so much for having me on, and I'll see you tomorrow. Okay, thank you. Hear the full unedited interview with Jay Duckworth at BroadwayBullet.com or at SoundCloud slash Broadway Bullet. And in our next episode, we went backstage at Cymbeline and talked to a lot of the tech people as they were getting ready for the performance at Shakespeare in the Park. So catch our next episode for that story. The next promotional spot is available for your business. Visit newplayexchange.org for new works to excite your artistry. If you're a playwright, you can post, and if you're an artist or a theater company, you can search for great new plays on lots of criteria and find gems like this one. Ben and Rita by Wendy Marie Martin. With a cast of four, two men, two women, it's a new type of romantic comedy. Rita's desperate need for attention has driven away everyone she's ever known. Ben never got close enough to anyone to scare them off in the first place. In fact, he hasn't left his apartment in ten years. But when a teenage girl shows up on Rita's doorstep, claiming to be her psychic granddaughter, Rita and Ben's worlds collide, and they are faced with a choice. Continue to live in fear, or 
take a chance on love. Be sure to check out and support newplayexchange.org. This is Lynn Shore with Happy 50-ish Musical. Catch my interview on the next Broadway Bullet. Listening Room. Again, we'd like you to send us your recordings of your original cabaret or musical theater songs to broadwaybulletnyc at gmail.com. Give us a two-sentence setup to contextualize the song if necessary, and maybe we'll hear your song on Broadway Bullet. In the meantime, we've got a song by Brian Loudermilk and lyrics by Kate Kerrigan. The song is Anonymous Sex, and this is from Tales from the Bad Years. This is performed by Skylar Austin and Phoebe Stroll live. Part of why I picked this song is we've had both Skylar Austin and Phoebe Stroll on the program back when we were doing our Going Geeky Over Spring Awakening features. You can check that out. In the meantime, here is Anonymous Sex by Kerrigan Loudermilk. Give me a girl who's got hair down to her ass Someone who never leaves a glass of wine unfinished
program is made possible in part by... You can find sheet music for that song as well as lots of other fresh new songs from newmusicaltheater.com. Again, a great source for sheet music for new songs for your auditions or cabaret performances, newmusicaltheater.com. Festival Feature. I am here with Jonathan G. Galvez, and I'm very excited because not only is he in the middle of producing his fourth show with the Fringe Festival, with a lot of advice on that, but he's also a very close friend of mine, both from graduate school and from professional work itself. So welcome, Jonathan G. Galvez. How are you doing? Thank you. I'm doing good. Welcome back to New York. Okay. And I know professionally go by Jonathan G. Galvez. If I slip up America, um, it's because like I know this guy. So <laughs> it's all good. And I know him by John Galvez. And I go, yeah, but so you, let's first nuts and bowls. You know, out of four shows, you're doing one very currently, yeah. depending on when the show airs. But what's your current, your most recent foray into the Fringe Festival? Uh, my 2015 entry into the New York International Fringe Festival is a play called A Life to be Determined. And the base synopsis is that uh, a guy's in the middle of a bank robbery and a woman is lost in the middle of nowhere. And that is page one of a love story. <laughs> it's a three-part play that's done in three very distinct different styles. So I have three different directors because for each of them to do deal with each of the different styles involved with the play. All right. And you wrote this, correct? Yeah. And you so and with all the most of these entries as we go through, you are a very prolific playwright and oh, you've produced you. most of these as well, right? My bank account says yes. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So that's current one. Back up to your last entry into the festival. Uh, last year was oh, one of my proudest pieces. It was called uh, The Call of the Siren. It was a, uh, it was a, not a musical, but a dancical. Like musicals, people break into song. This one, instead of breaking into song to tell the story, they broke into dance to tell the story. And it's about this uh, girl who's a superhero by night, but a struggling dancer by day. And she tries to solve uh, the murder of one of her fellow dancers. And that was just an amazing, amazingly collaborative piece with original music. And that was so much fun back in 2014. Okay. Previous uh, pre Fringe Festival entry before that. On, on the previous episode <laughs> uh, was a play called uh, The Girl With Her Hands in the Sand. It's about an artist dealing with uh, choosing between the artistic life and real life after the death of her mother. Uh, that was at the studio Cherry Lane. And that was also a fantastic piece with a fantastic crew. All right. And... <laughs> First entry my into the Fringe Festival. My first entry in the Fringe was a play called 30 Minutes or Less. It was about a Chinese food delivery boy who's not actually Chinese uh, who stumbles upon a murder scene. So every year it's been a drastically different play in regards to content and style. And that's the kind of thing the Fringe likes. They like to see different stuff from people just to see what they can do. And no two of my plays really run along the same vein. And that's kind of one of the things I pride myself in that every time you come to see one of my shows, it is something different, and you'll never know what to expect. So, let's dive into some of the nitty-gritty here. Mm -hmm. The Fringe Festival is a wonderful festival, a way to yes. get involved. Um, but there's things that you learn, I am guessing, that you can only learn by doing. Well, do you want me to start with the good news or the bad news? Well, it can mix in and out. I, what I do want to say is I want the good, the bad, and the ugly. Okay. Part of why I invited you is by doing it four times, clearly that even if you tell us the ugly, you are a fan of the festival. Yes, I am. So, um... That said, that's why we're bringing you on. Don't worry about offending the fringe. I think they'll get it. Well, we want the good, the bad, and the ugly. What What are people getting into if they want to try to apply to the fringe? If they get into the fringe, 
Yeah. Well, let me start with the great thing. Um, the person who runs the festival, it's run by the present company, and the person in charge of that company is Elena K. Holly. And during my first, our first meet, we had like this registration period where we had marketing meetings with members of the staff, and I met with her. And I ran into her, and she gave me a hug, and she knew my name, and she remembered my play off the top of, top of her head, and she knew my, all my previous plays in the Fringe. And there are 250 plays in the Fringe each year. I'm like, you read thousands of plays this year. You remember mine. And you remember my name and the shows I've done. And, like, we're going over the marketing stuff, and, and you know, we're trying to discuss plot points. And she's bringing up plot points before I even bring it up. And I'm like, how, you have to remember, know how many plays this year? And it's amazing that she just knew my stuff. It, and I got that level of attention. And I've met with other members of the regular staff on the fringe. And they recognize my name. They recognize, you know, what we do. And it's very comforting. And it's a very safe thing. You don't feel like you're taking a risk with the fringe when you're working, talking to the staff. It just makes it that much more fun and that much more of a community of artists working on the festival. On the flip side of it, when you're accepted into the fringe, for those who don't know, you're just being presented by the Fringe Festival. They are not producing the show for you. You have to find your own director, your own cast, your own staff. You have to find your own money, which is probably the hardest thing to do in theater in New York, is to find that money um, to get the show up. I mean, the first time I was accepted to the Fringe, I was like, on top of the world, this is great. We're going to the next thing. And every subsequent time, every time I got that acceptance letter, I'm like, damn, I got to do this again. <laughs> Which it's 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 bittersweet because you know you you're doing something great you're doing doing something great with great people, you just have to do all the work for it and I think that's one of the most important things to remember about the fr- doing the fringe it's not something you do for fun it's something you work toward because you love it you know and you're not don't know everything coming in you don't know what theater you're going to get you don't know how big your audience audience space is going to be you don't know the stage space sometimes up until a week before your first show you don't know what the stage configuration is going to be like. I've gotten lucky sometimes because a lot of the spaces and they're all over downtown there. I'm at the cow this year. Previously I was at the Connolly cherry lane, so on. Some spaces are set for what they are. Other spaces, not so much. They can change on a dime. So you have to be ready to configure uh, in the rehearsal room right away because the, the space itself changed. That's the tricky part of it, but that's the nature of it. It's like being on top chef where they do like the quick fire stuff. Uh, it's like, okay, you have these ingredients. This is what you have to do with it. Ten minutes in. Oh, we're going to throw in another ingredient. Oh, we're going to throw in another twist. It's kind of like that. It makes it exciting and scary at the at the same time. Step one, to mm-hmm. maybe break some illusions for people. If they were to do no promotion, mm-hmm. no publicity on their own, how much of a built-in audience is there going to be for them? See, that's, that's kind of tricky because it depends on the show. Uh, last night, I was talking to a guy who has a show going up in the fringe called Dex, the Unauthorized Musical, which is basically, um, everyone was pissed about the season series finale of Dexter. If you haven't seen it, you'll be pissed. Just letting you know now. Um, and he wrote a musical that's basically, if Mike, Michael C. Hall read the script and said, I don't like this script, let me write the finale myself, and it's all going to be a musical. And it's just a brilliant concept. That guy, he doesn't have to do any marketing, because the basic concept sells itself. He just has to talk about it once, and then it's word of mouth, like what just happened right now. Um, other shows where they don't have that pop culture hook to it, that's where they have trouble with the promotions and marketing. That's where they have kind of an uphill battle. That's why I have a lot of uphill battles, because I don't do that kind of stuff. I don't write the pop culture stuff. Like, I remember a few years ago, they had uh, Perez Hilton Saves the World, which, mm-hmm. title alone, I will see that show. They have some shows where they have big stars. Like, I think two, three years ago, they had a show called Tailspin, starring Rachel Dratch, which went off Broadway. And that one sold really well because they had a name attached. But for shows that don't have a name attached, especially solo shows, 
it's hard to find an audience if you don't know how to market, how to use the Twitter, how to interpersonally market with other shows and with people in New York. It's incredibly difficult to market. I'm still trying to figure it out, and it's my fourth time in this thing. That's just it's just part of the game. Yeah. Mm. How much does it cost to participate in the fringe? Uh, I was talking to Christian DeGray, who's the general manager of the Fringe last night, about this because some shows can do it on the cheap. Some shows spend a lot of money. Like I was hearing wind of a show that was spending $75,000 on a Fringe show and they were hoping to make their money back. And <laughs> that is not realistic in any way whatsoever. Um, some shows will spend like eight, ten thousand $10,000 depending on what they want to do. And a lot of times it's spending a lot of money on actors, especially if you're working with equity actors and they do the showcase code and that costs money and you want good sets and all that, get all the designers. I'm lucky because I have a production co- I work with a company called Theatrical Gems that I co-founded, and uh, we're a nonprofit, so we get discounts on a lot of stuff because we're a nonprofit and also because we're Fringe. Um, we try to find every discount possible. A lot of studio spaces will give you discounts because you're with Fringe. We just had to find those spaces, and a lot of theater companies, which were like spending the eight ten thousand dollars, they're like, oh, we got to get the best space possible, and that's not necessarily necessary. Um, the most I've ever spent on a show was my superhero Dancical, and. Um, but can I really say, should I really say the amount I spent yes, on the show? Yes, I really want you to spill the beans. Okay, I only spent about $4,000 on that show. Um, and because we did a minimal set. And that was the most expensive out of all That is the most, yeah, that is the most expensive, most I spent on a show because a lot of my plays are one set. So I don't have to spend a lot of money on set and I don't have to spend a lot of money on costumes. Last year I had to spend a lot more on dance spaces and um, set pieces and having, and the, Superhero costume, so it was a little more. I was a little more expensive. Um, paying actors, I haven't really. I'll be honest. I haven't really paid actors to be in my show because they understand it's the fringe. They understand it's low budget. They understand that it's a good op- exposure opportunity. Um, so I really skimped on paying the actors. I really hate the fact that I can't pay my actors, but it's just I can't afford it. I mean, the fact is, is that just because of how the money. But def- but, but you. In return, you built up a good rapport with people. Oh yeah, because so. yeah, I mean, you know, we have a situ- we've had situations where actors have dropped out for whatever reason. They got a paying gig or whatever, and we understand. But I know, <clears throat> but I know a lot of talented. You're people. in the middle of that one of those deals right now, right? Yes, uh, we just got him um, <laughs> literally 20 minutes ago, okay. and we know a lot of people. We've worked with a lot of people, and I know a lot of actors who've worked with me in previous friend shows. They know what. Um, I do. They know how I work, and they would like to work with me again. And you get to build that rapport, and you get to find these people last minute. And you know, you, you because you build that community of people you want to work with. Okay. Let people know what they what kind of amount of time are they dealing with when they've got tech at Fringe. Um, tech at Fringe, you get okay. Here's the here's the deal. First of all, you don't know your venue right away. Um, and when you finally do get your venue, you get a preview of the venue but it's not necessarily going to be in that shape. Um, then you have the venue prep day, which every show has to send one person from one person where every show has to go to, and then you're rigging lights, and then you're setting it up, and you still don't have an idea what's going to be like. Finally, you get your tech time. Tech time is your show length times two, which basically means that you're able to do a queue to queue and run your show. That's all you have time to do in the space. That's all you get to do in the space. Just run it through once and do a queue to queue. That's all you get to do. And it's tricky, especially with the more tech-heavy shows. I've noticed. Do you a, recommend queue to queue first, then run, or run and then queue to queue? I recommend queue to queue first, then run. Absolutely. I mean, I think there's a lot you can do with really simple ideas that are really impressive. My show this year, Left to Be Determined, it's in three different styles. <coughs> the first two styles are very tech-heavy, and the last one is lights up, lights down. 
It's that simple. I just you know, part of me is just wanted to demonstrate that yeah, you could have all this fun, cool stuff, but you can be just as effective and just as generally awesome with just lights up, lights down. I mean, it can't be about making money. That's the thing. I mean, I have a job right now where every like half of the money I make is going into the show because I know that's what I have to do in order to get the show up. You know, I have to have that kind level of commitment. But you know, while I'm you know having to make food, make food choices uh, based on whether or not I have the money for the show, I just know that in the end it's going to be worth it for me. Now, if the show goes somewhere, great. If it doesn't go somewhere, that's fine too because at least it happened. You know. And I can say, I put this up. I did this. I was here for this moment. All right. Well, thank you so much, John, for coming in. Thank you. Jonathan G. Galvez. Thank you. You uh, got yeah, that. Yeah, and uh, best of luck this year, your fourth time in the Fringe. And yep. I'm sure you'll be saying never again in about two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready to put money down on that one. Although, never mind. I can't afford it. But... The full, unedited interview with Jonathan G. Galvez is at broadwaybullet.com or soundcloud.com slash broadway-bullet. He's got lots more hints and advice for those of you interested in participating in the Fringe Festival, so check that out. Hi there. This is Caroline Reyes, associate producer for the Broadway Bullet. If you love our show so much you just can't hold it in, we have some great news. You can call in and give us a shout-out. The number to call is 406-282-4931. Again, that's 406-282-4931. Record your shout-out, and we'll try to get it in an upcoming episode of the Broadway Bullet. Thanks for listening. Curtain Call. Well, that about wraps up our first Totally new episode in almost five years. I am so excited to be back. It was great getting all of the interviews in New York City. Uh, the press reps were great and eager to work with me again. So you're going to be seeing a lot of great stuff. Also, uh, maybe if you got a moment, stop by the broadwaybullet.com website and sign up for a mailing list. Uh, every once in a while, especially as a few more names built on the list, uh, we'll probably be able to get some giveaways and some things happening with that list. So please do sign up. Podcasting is social media, so please tell your friends who like theater about this podcast. Tell them how to subscribe, walk them through it. Sometimes people need a little bit of hand-holding with the subscription service, so please help us out and show a friend. We got more great stuff coming up at you in two weeks on Tuesday, August 18th. We've got two actors from the 39 Steps Off-Broadway we're back with Jay Duckworth and a lot of the people backstage at the Public Theater for the presentation of Cymbeline at Shakespeare in the Park. And we've got writer and performer Lynn Shore of Happy 50-ish, which I hear is actually getting a lot of great notice in New York City, so you might want to check that out. So remember, we're going to be, for the next couple months, for the next nine episodes, we're the first and third Tuesday of the month. You can find links of everything we talked about in the show at broadwaybullet.com. And we are going to be having all of the unedited, uncensored interviews at broadwaybullet.com or soundcloud.com slash broadway-bullet.com. This is my attempt to satisfy everybody. It seems we always had half of the listeners asking for uncut, unfettered interviews and half the people saying they got rambling and long. So to meet both your demands, the main program will have the edited interviews and 
The unedited interviews will be online for those of you who want to find out more from that person. The show notes on the webpage and the unedited interviews will usually go up about the same time as the podcast, but there are times where they may be up just a day or two later than the podcast itself. So, we will see you in two weeks with Volume 602 of Broadway Bullet. Welcome back. I'm so glad to be doing this again. Thank you. Broadway Bullet is produced by Michael Gilbo, associate producer Caroline Reyes. Special thanks again to our location sponsor, Sid Gold's Request Room. Check out Sid Gold's, the original rock and roll piano bar in the heart of Manhattan. Until next time. So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.